The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar's U.S. facility operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, offering state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality. Mission Solar's modules provide world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Mission Solar is proud to be part of America's booming solar industry. To find out more about its cells and modules, visit missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Has it sunk in yet? President-elect Donald J. Trump. Those words are still reverberating around the walls here at GTM. And I think like many of our listeners, we're trying to figure out what it means for the energy industry broadly and what it means for the business of clean energy specifically. Jigger Shaw is traveling this week, and I'm here in GTM's offices with Shale Khan, our senior VP of research. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. I just want to say to the Energy Yang listeners that uh, I know this is a week probably when you could use Jigger more than any other week. So I'm going to do a terrible job of replacing him, but you'll be happy to have him back next week. (laughs) We're going to be covering these issues uh, both weeks, and I think you'll have equally valuable but perhaps different takes on these issues. So we're glad to have you on. And of course, with us is Catherine Hamilton, who's in Washington, D.C., and she's a partner with 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine. Hi, I'm glad that we're doing this two days after the election rather than the day after because I was operating on very little sleep, as I'm sure everybody was. You know, I have a lot of respect for Michael Barbaro of the New York Times who recorded a podcast at 2.30 in the morning and the 5.38 crew that you recorded at 3 in the morning and um, the Slate Political Gab Fest, John Dickerson, who was in the studio all night, you know, reporting for CBS and then reported a podcast. So we have it easy, but we're, we're also glad to be recording this today because we had a, di- a day to digest what exactly is going on. So let's talk about that. Firstly, if you believe in the urgency of climate change, I think there's no doubt that Donald Trump's win comes as a blow. He is now the only world leader who actively denies that humans are warming the planet. Many have said that his support was like a punch in the face to the establishment. To many who care deeply about climate, probably feels like a punch in the face personally. Whether or not you agreed with the top-down, government-centric, executive-level strategy of the Obama administration... It was arguably our only federal political path forward on decarbonization. Donald Trump rips that path up almost immediately. So how and where will he repave a new one? I also know there are plenty of Trump supporters listening. Perhaps climate's not a major concern or a concern at all. Perhaps you're jaded by Obama's approach to energy policy. Either way, there's no doubt that we're going to see a major reshuffling of federal energy priorities across many sectors. So we fielded a lot of questions from our listeners on Twitter yesterday. They're asking about the Paris climate deal, domestic carbon regulations, renewable energy tax credits, legislative pathways, and the role of states. So we're going to take a break from our traditional format of focusing on three news stories and just try to address as many of these as we can. Catherine, over to you first, because I know you had some opening thoughts about um, our audience, about the outcome, you know, now that you've had some time to digest Trump's win. Yeah, so just to put this in context, Republicans voted for Trump and Democrats voted for Clinton. Now, 
Trump got a million fewer votes than Mitt Romney did. And Hillary Clinton got 6 million votes fewer, fewer than Obama did in 2008. So she did not make up the margin. Um, these were both the most unpopular candidates and Trump's unfavorables were even higher than Clinton's, like 60% unfavorables. So they were not favorable candidates, but really people voted for their party. So I just imagine that a lot of our listeners voted for Trump because they're Republicans. And I think that was just kind of the way our country went. So, you know, with that in mind, we just need to think about, all right, then what is the result? And elections actually do have consequences. And there are going to be really big consequences for clean energy and climate. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But we know that a lot of our listeners are probably Republicans and voted for their party. I think related to that, also, one of the things that I'm interested to talk about as a thread throughout a lot of the conversation that we're going to have now about the specific potential impacts of a Trump presidency is to what extent are these impacts Trump-specific, things that are, are specific to him and something that he would have done different from others versus uh, you know, relatively standard Republican platform items? I think a lot of the things that, that we're going to be talking about Almost any Republican who would have been elected, with maybe a couple exceptions, I don't know, Catherine, you could probably tell better, like Kasich and Jeb Bush, maybe. But most of the Republicans who are potentially on the docket, had they won the presidency, would have done a lot of the things that it looks like Trump may do. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And remember, with with a GOP House and Senate, they're going to go ahead and do what they were planning to do, no matter what, no matter what Trump does does from an executive level. So they will continue on, um, pretty much unfettered by Trump. I would I would guess. Right. And I just also want to give the caveat, and we can debate this uh, if we want, but I, I want to give the caveat that. There is a ton of uncertainty here in my mind. We we just don't know a lot of what's going to happen. So we can speculate right now uh, and we can base what we think might happen, particularly on, you know, Trump has re-released his plan for the first hundred days. That's probably pretty credible. But generally speaking, beyond that, to me, everything is uncertain. I just want to be clear that we just don't know. And if there's anything we've learned in this election season, it's that a surety is not assured, and that uh, the people who claim they know what's going to happen clearly do not, because we were all surprised. (laughs) Um, But with that said, there are a lot of indicators. Trump has made plenty of statements about energy on the campaign trail, and in the later stages of his campaign, made more statements than in the the earlier stages, Um, has released his 100-day plan, which has more on energy. And a lot of very smart people have been paying attention to this and talking to folks within the transition team or people who are close to the transition team. So we have a lot of indicators here. And we are going to try to figure out A, what this means, and B, I think we'll try to speculate a little bit here um, about what it means legislatively as well. And let me just get right to the listener questions here. The, The first one revolves around Obama's series of executive actions on climate change, particularly the Clean Power Plan, which was used as leverage to sign the Paris Climate Agreement. So These two pieces of action go hand in hand, and everyone is wondering, particularly now that we have the COP22 conference in Marrakesh, 
what the heck is going to happen with U.S. climate policy and what does that mean for international climate negotiations? Catherine, I'm going to give you the first shot on this one. Um, it seems pretty clear based upon the early draft of, of Trump's 100-day plan that they want to tear down the clean power plan. These are the EPA carbon regulations, flexible carbon regulations for states, and also not adhere to the Paris climate negotiations. So tell us a little bit more about what you think may happen there. Yeah. So remember, uh, President Obama has had to do a lot on climate from using by using executive authority because Congress thwarted him every step of the way. Remember when he got in, Mitch McConnell said, you know, my goal is to basically stop him from getting anything done. So rather than being able to do things through a legislative process, he's had to do things from the executive authority. Well, in the same token, Trump can come in and use that same executive authority to turn back everything that Obama put into place. So on the clean power plan, the quickest way to do that would be that when the Trump administration comes in, they can contact the circuit court. And depending how far along on in the process, they can just say, we are not, we are no longer going to pursue this proceeding. And the court could just have to drop the case. If they side with the states, then there is no way that that case would necessarily go on. That's one thing that they could do, because then the case would no longer have the administration backing it up and taking it forward. So just to make sure that I understand then, so if the administration on day one goes to the court and says, we are no longer pursuing this action, does that automatically kill the clean power plan? Or does that then just open the door for the new EPA administrator to kill it? So the court would need to abandon the case, right? Um, if they sided with the states, so I or would would probably have to drop the case. It kind of depends how far along they are in the process. But this will be very easy because the solicitor general will be a Trump solicitor, right? And they can just decide not to defend the EPA because they are the attorney for the federal government. So they can just decide not to to support the EPA. The other thing that they can do is simply Trump can just say to the EPA you're not going to work on this and just direct the staff of the EPA not to work on the rule anymore. That brings me to the other scenario, and that is if, if it's upheld in the courts, then the Trump administration needs to go and mount its own legal case against why this does not rest with EPA's authority. And you go back into many, many more months of legal wrangling. Right. And they will be able to appoint at least one new Supreme Court justice to make sure that they could win in the Supreme Court if it were to be taken up by the Supreme Court, which we assume it would be. Right. So that would be in their in their interest to do that. Now, I mean, one of the the gnarly issues is that the Supreme Court did um, uphold in Massachusetts versus EPA, that EPA has to regulate greenhouse gases, that they are harmful to humans. But Trump can just internally direct his staff to slow walk it. So they can not only get rid of the clean power plan, but they can just slow walk anything else they do. And that's what that's exactly what uh, George W. Bush had done. Right. So it seems, I mean, one way or another, however the process goes, it seems likely that the clean power plan is not enacted, implemented by EPA. I got a question yesterday from somebody that I don't quite know the answer to, which is what if some states decide they want to move forward anyway? Can they do that? Can the state, if the EPA isn't mandating it, can a governor decide to move forward with a clean power plan plan uh, at the state level? Or do they, would they then need state legislative 
support on that because it's not being mandated by the federal government? Is that possible? I don't know why yeah, they would so even think- look to the federal government in that case. Wouldn't they just say, okay, let's legislatively... Yeah, that's right. I think that states, a lot of states have already started moving forward. A lot of them have already, you know, met or beat the goals of the Clean Power Plan anyway. They were pretty, you know, they were pretty conservative goals. So I think state, that is going to be the play, is that states are going to continue to move. And remember, investment has already shifted. So that's the good news, is that a lot of investment in clean energy technologies has already shifted. And states have started implementing those, understanding that whether or not the Clean Power Plan comes into play, that that's really the future. Right. I mean, one thing that I guess is a benefit here is that the Clean Power Plan assuming that it does get rolled back, is getting rolled back before it was ever really implemented in the first place. And thus, you know, there was always some uncertainty. So all the positive action that we've seen on clean energy deployment and investment at the state level was occurring knowing it was possible, whether because there was a new administration or because the Supreme Court knocked it down that the clean power plan might not go forward. I think that's right. And what I'm seeing missed largely in the reporting around the clean power plan is this broader context of Obama's climate action plan developed in 2013, which basically brought together new and existing regulations into one big package in order to sell to the international community that we were putting together a comprehensive climate plan. This was CAFE standards, methane regulations, DOE efficiency regulations, the Clean Power Plan itself at the EPA, a bunch of other stuff. And many of these were executive orders that are now going to also likely get targeted by Trump. And so we're not just talking about the clean power plan here. We're talking about a whole host of other um, executive actions that revolve around the clean power plan. Yeah, I can't imagine that the methane rules would go forward in any meaningful way. No, they've said they've said specifically that they want to get rid of methane rules. What about cafe standards that I mean, what's the what are the politics of cafe standards, Catherine? Well, so they probably wouldn't be strengthened, certainly. But remember, whenever any sort of regulation is put into place, um, often it's not even put into place until industry is ready for it. So industry has already shifted. That's a, that's another reason that even though some of these um, regulations won't move forward, industry may continue because they've already made the investments to change their practices and their you know, their business model. So I think that you'll still see car companies continue to invest in cleaner technologies like electric vehicles, because those are also really good business practices for them. Here's a question that somebody asked us that we're actually, I'm having some of our analysts look into. So we intend to have a clearer answer to this in the next couple of weeks, but I'll just raise it now because I think it's something that I haven't seen discussed many places in the past couple of days, which is, uh, So utility-scale solar is a good example of a place where you could say investment has already shifted and the economics will win out regardless whether there's a clean power plan or not. Now, we'll come back to the ITC, I'm sure. But assuming the ITC is in place, you know, you can sign a power purchase agreement for utility-scale solar project in the U.S. right now for, on average, sub five cents a kilowatt hour um, and falling, right? And so that has enabled a lot of growth in the utility-scale solar market outside of state-level regulatory mandates. So, you know, more than half of the new capacity that came online this year will come online next year is going to come outside of RPS standards. Now, a part of that procurement, what we 
call voluntary procurement, is generally utilities issuing technology agnostic RFPs or doing bilateral negotiations where they end up procuring solar because it is the best economic decision. What I don't know, and this we're going to dig into some utility IRPs to figure this out and talk to a few of them, is whether they were accounting for a carbon price, the likelihood that there would be some kind of price on carbon in their calculation of the economic preferability of solar. In other words, if you, if they now might think, well, we have a new administration, it's very unlikely that we're going to see a price on carbon, at least in the short term. Um, and they might still think there might be one in the long term. But they, if they say for the next few years, there's not going to be one, then does the economic calculus that they were making that was leading them to procure a bunch of utility scale solar, does that change? So that's a question, not an answer, but it's something I think we need to look into. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was, you know, the Clean Power Plan gave some signals on carbon, but I don't think there was ever the reality of having a carbon price, no matter what had happened. That would uh, It seems to me like that would have been foolhardy to assume that would have been the case. Well, I don't think that they necessarily were assuming that there would be a carbon tax or like a literal price on carbon. But if you assume the clean power plan was going to be implemented and the utility was going to need to change its resource mix as a result, then you should attach some quantitative preference to technologies that wouldn't need fuel switching in a clean power plan universe versus those that would. Okay, so we could go on all day about clean power plan. And I want to touch on the Paris Climate Agreement, because the COP22 conference is underway right now. And this feeds into what the United States will do internationally. And basically, it seems like the Trump strategy will be similar to one of the options for the clean power plan, and that is the slow walk. So if they wanted to renegotiate the deal that was agreed to last December, they would, um, it would take three years or so to back out of the deal. Um, but it's non-binding. So it's the Trump administration will probably just say, we don't have to do anything. You know, they, they just won't live up to the commitments. And if that happens, it's likely that China, India, Brazil, and others don't live up to their commitments. There could be a domino effect. So Catherine, do you want to comment on that? My sense is that they will slow walk, foot drag, and just delay on the climate agreement. There's no reason to spend political capital or spend time to try to renegotiate this deal at all. Yeah. So there's a good piece um, by John Upton in Climate Central on how it could happen and how he could do this and how they could abandon the 1992 treaty. And I am not an expert on that. The issue, there's sort of two things. One is the leadership aspect. What is the U.S. doing on climate leadership? And certainly, um, Secretary Kerry and President Obama had shown that the U.S. was a leader um, from the governmental perspective. Now, there's a difference between that and what's really happening with greenhouse gases. So our country could still meet greenhouse gas targets by continuing to shift from dirty to clean energy, from the state perspective, from, you know, investment perspectives, from deployment. And we likely will. Yes. I mean, natural gas prices are going to be low. States are doing a lot. That's Renewables right. are competitive. Like, this stuff is happening, and it's not going to slow just because yes. Trump is in the White House. And I think, so there are two different things. One is sort of federal governmental leadership. Now, what that means is that all those other parties, the NGO, the civil society pieces, are going to, it's going to be incumbent on them to prove that the U.S. is actually still meeting commitments, even though the leadership is saying it's not meeting commitments. And I'm not exactly sure what the dynamic there is because I'm not in that kind of sphere. But I think 
um, we could still show that we're moving forward um, through civil society means, not through our government. What do you make of, I just, I'm trying to parse the actual words in his first 100-day plan as it pertains to Paris. And here's what it actually says. This is seventh on a, one of his three or four lists of what he's going to do. It says, seventh, cancel billions in payments to UN climate change programs and use the money to fix America's water and environmental infrastructure. So he's he's not saying I'm going to back out. He's not saying I'm not going to enact it. He's saying I'm going to cancel billions in payments to the program. And that's, that's a change from his May 100-day plan, which explicitly called out the Paris Climate Agreement. I actually think that's quite interesting that they they left out the Paris language. But that billions, I think, is referring to the Green Climate Fund. Right, exactly. So if all he does is, I mean, that's bad, right? The Green Climate Fund is there to support developing nations as they adapt to climate change. But uh, if at, if that's all he does, it's not a worst case scenario for Paris, right? Well, it could just be a recognition that they don't want to renegotiate the deal and they just say we're going to give up on it. I mean, it, it very well could be a good, a slightly more positive sign. My guess is that they just don't need to put it in there because they're not going to cancel anything. They're not going to go through this two or three year process to cancel the deal. They're just not going to live up to it. Yeah, and they won't have someone in the room negotiating with the other countries. They, I just imagine that they're probably not going to commit to it. I, I don't really know. I mean, this is pretty speculative. He may get some pressure from global leadership to do something and to step up in some way. Um, global so leaders we'll are, to, are already common. Yeah. And so we'll kind of have to see what that is. Like Trump has never been elected to his, to an office. So he's never had to lead anything like a government. And so it will be interesting to see how he does that, which is very different from leading a company and, you know, how he deals with the actual governing piece and and how he responds to global pressure. Which I think is super important in all this because he's very malleable and he's shifted positions so many times over the years. I don't know that we're, we're quite certain what we're going to get. I mean, he spelled it out in a 100-day plan. He's brought in people in his transition team who've made it clear they want to cut down these uh, regulations. But there's just there's a ton of unknown here. Well, his new his new Myron Abel from Competitive Enterprise Institute is a climate skeptic. He's the EPA transition team. That's right. So he um, right. So you look at who he's appointing, because I don't think Trump is going to get in the weeds. He's going to have other people to get in the weeds. And um, and, you know, Newt Gingrich's name floating around as Secretary of State. Now, at one point, Newt Gingrich... Sarah wrote, Palin for for Secretary of the Interior. Oh, boy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, what you're going to find... You know, Newt Gingrich used to be... Remember, he were, there were all these pictures and, and ads with him with Nancy Pelosi on climate. So he used to actually be kind of m- more forward thinking on climate. I'm not sure if that's going to uh, re, you know, resurface or not, but you know, we'll see. What do you make of, uh, I just want to represent Jigger here for a moment. Shout out to Jigger who's gone this week. Uh, Jigger literally wrote a book on how climate change is a, the greatest wealth creation opportunity of our millennium or something like that. Um, what do you make of the idea, at least from a rhetorical standpoint, of trying to convince the incoming Trump administration that, look, whether or not you believe that climate change is a problem, there is a wealth creation opportunity here in the transition to a new type of energy economy. Don't give up on that entirely. So I would just say that look at our Congress. Congress is very much in place because of the Koch brothers. And 
those guys want to get rid of clean energy altogether. Well, wait a second, so I, I just you, you know yourself in, in, in this ITC battle, there has been incredible Republican support for the ITC and the PTC because the vast majority of installations are actually in Republican districts. So I don't know that I, I, I buy that. Um, okay, well, whether or not you buy it, on the list, the target list for the Cook uh, Industries is getting rid of the PTC and ITC. Now, that's not to say they'll be able to, because you're right. There are Republicans for whom this is very important, like Senator, and, and that is important to their constituents, like Senator Heller from Nevada and Senator Grassley from Iowa. So I think there are there is Republican support in place. I'm not saying there's not Republican support for clean energy. I'm just saying there are a lot of there's a lot of permission now in Congress to turn back the clock on clean energy. Yeah, I think, I mean, what the what, what the Koch brothers say typically is not that they're opposed to clean energy, it's that they're opposed to clean energy subsidies, right? Like they, they would be all for solar if they thought it was economically competitive without subsidies. They're opposed to subsidizing, you know, new technologies, basically. And, and so... I don't know. I just it does feel to me if I'm trying to maintain sort of grains of optimism for congressional action that doesn't that doesn't necessarily go exclusively in a negative direction on clean energy that that the frame of a wealth creation opportunity as as something that create that does create jobs in a lot of these districts is at least the best way you can go. I totally agree with that, Jill. I think that it is going to be incumbent on the industry to get into districts and to say this is important for jobs in innovation in your district because people, as we can tell just from the election results, there are people out there who are hurting, who are underpaid for the work they are doing if they have a job. Even though the employment rate is below 5%, the underemployment rate is higher. So I think it is incumbent on the industry to go out and make sure that every member of Congress understands from a district perspective where those jobs are. And I do think there's some opportunities there. And with Trump, you know, he does want to do infrastructure. So he considers the electric grid modernization as part of infrastructure. So I think we could get some things, some more smart grid or energy storage, and storage is actually in the Republican platform. Uh, so we could get some technology movement and some ability to, to get some good provisions and legislation. The issue is, is that legislation in and of itself going to be you know, palatable to the Senate? And 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 the and the Democrats in the Senate such that something can get through that has you know some grains of hope in it. The wealth creation opportunity angle is exactly what I tried to capture in my first piece after it became clear that Trump was going to take the presidency, and I I thought a lot about you know at like two in the morning about how to cover it, and I realized that you know painting a doom and gloom story about the potential impact to the industry or about climate change really wasn't what we what what was important to capture it's that trump spoke to a lot of people who feel economically disaffected and who think that the new globalized economy has left them behind and we have an incredible opportunity in this country to develop an industry that will create enormous wealth and domestic jobs. And 
In fact, we're already doing that. Uh, we have a million solar rooftops. We have 210,000 solar jobs. We have, you know, 80,000 wind jobs. Wind technician is the fastest growing job category in the United States. The, the advanced energy economy is worth $200 billion in this country alone, which is more than pharmaceuticals and almost as much as consumer electronics. And I really just tried to lay out the economic case for this industry as a way to support the people that Trump spoke to who feel like they don't have that type of economic opportunity. That doesn't mean that it's just going to spread to everyone equally. Um, certainly in people in coal communities, we, we have to, you know, figure out how to reach and it's not like they're all just going to become solar installers overnight. But I think that's the message that folks in the industry are going to try to capture. After I wrote that piece, I talked to a number of people who have said like, yes, that's exactly how we're trying to frame it. I had a conversation with, uh, the Solar Energy Industries Association today and they said, look, that's the only way we can frame this. And quite frankly, we think we're in a pretty good position, um, Maybe we won't see many of the big ticket items that a Clinton administration might have put forward, but we don't see Republicans or Trump attacking us because they also see this as an economic opportunity. So I think that framing is really important, and I think it's what you're going to hear from people who support the clean tech transition generally. We we talked about, or you just mentioned rather, coal for a second, which I'd like to stick on for just a moment, because I feel like I've, I'm hearing two somewhat competing narratives about what Trump can do or will do as it pertains to coal, right? Obviously, he talked about bringing coal back a lot uh, during the campaign when he visited West Virginia and things like that. A lot of people have pointed out that his actual policy proposals, to the extent that there are proposals to this point are, you know, supporting natural gas, which is largely the thing that has been killing coal in the first place. So, you know, it's not entirely clear how that would work. My question is this, right? He presumably wants to roll back any EPA regulations on coal. How much of a difference does that make in coal's economic competitiveness versus natural gas? Like, does that improve coal's positioning? Um, Well, not necessarily, because coal has already been impacted not just by natural gas, but by air toxics rules that have long been put in place by the EPA. And he's not just going to go in there and strip those rules out that have already been established, is my sense. And Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But coal's been suffering because of these regulations that have been developed over the course of the last 10, 12 years. Well, but what's to stop him from rolling those back? Well, I suppose he's gone in and and he, he can start targeting regulations that have been put into place, but utilities have already put in place the scrubbers. They've retrofitted their plants to meet these regulations, and there's really no reason for uh, Trump to sort of make these sweeping changes when utilities have already met these regulations. This is my speculation. This is sort of what people are thinking about as they look at what regulations he might roll back. And there's this competing, there's this competition between what industry has already done and in meeting regulations and what regulations you could roll back because industry is supportive of them. Yeah. But what about just extending lifetimes of existing plants? So maybe it still isn't going to make sense to build a whole lot of new coal capacity in the US. But couldn't you imagine that via rolling back a, a series of regulations, 
Um, it makes it more economic to continue the operation of, a, of an existing plant, which then just delays the time at which you need new capacity, which could be clear. I think that's probably a realistic scenario. Uh, it's not one that I've seen people model necessarily yet. And if any listeners uh, have done that themselves or know of any studies thus far on what this would do to existing coal capacity uh, or existing regulations like MACT regulations, please let us know. It's reminding me, has he ever said anything about nuclear? Have you heard Donald Trump ever? First of all, well, before we I wonder how that, he pronounces nuclear. Yeah, but right. second of all, has he said anything about it? Before we get to nuclear, Catherine, I don't know if you wanted to jump in on coal. Yeah, I think it would help us to talk to somebody from the Beyond Coal campaign or somebody who's really on the ground working on coal issues because there are a lot of plants that are set for retirement that are going to retire regardless. And, and that's because there are way, other ways to generate like natural gas that are cheaper um, and easier and cleaner. And, you know, whether or not that's because of government really regulation or not, I think that we have to kind of take stock of what that means, really. But there are also, remember, there are statutes in place that would have to be rolled back on a lot of issues that are that, yes, there's regulation, but there's also statute to back things up. So that's something we would need to need to look at, too. We did get a listener who asked us about nuclear, so we might as well go to that since you brought it up, Shale. Uh, my sense is that a Trump administration could be good for nuclear because they want to they help streamline the regulatory process for companies. They want to strip regulations away. And so the nuclear industry has been hindered by a long approval process. And if that is part of their plan to speed that approval process up, then it could be good for next generation nuclear reactors, and it could be good for potentially conventional light water reactors that utilities are thinking of building. So I've not seen anyone model this, but let's just say in theory, if the Trump administration is focused on fewer regulatory burdens, that presumably helps nuclear. Well, and the mechanism here, as I understand it, is that uh, there is also one, or Catherine, you might know, two openings in this administration on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So I guess who he appoints there, which I haven't heard any speculation about that, uh, could dictate whether it's the kind of person who wants to streamline those regulations or or the, the permitting process rather or slow it down. Yeah, and I am not an expert on that organization or nuclear power, but I still wonder if it would meet the Wall Street test anyway, if it would still even be able to garner enough investment to, you know, resurge. I mean, one wonders what the Trump administration would do on the DOE side with loan guarantees. If they if, you know, they could try to get deals done with with loan guarantees assuming they decide to make nuclear a a a, a greater um priority, but the Obama administration has already made nuclear priority too. So I don't see them doing more than what Obama has done other than a, attempt to make the regulatory process easier. Yeah, and I think invest the investment in DOE research is going to shift probably from, you know, the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy to more to the fossil offices. But again, I don't think there's going to be a huge influx of funding for the DOE generally. And partly that's because the Ryan budget. I mean, that's what's going to be taking precedence is what the House of Representatives wants to do on the budget. And they're not looking to give DOE a bunch more money. No, DOE had to scrap hard for the few billion dollars they got for EERE. And when uh, Stephen Chu came in as energy secretary, he really worked, he and his staff worked hard uh, on the Hill to beef up the budget specifically for renewables and efficiency. And that office had historically been 
uh, underserved. And so now that we have a few billion dollar budget, that's probably the the peak for that office. And one wonders how much the Trump administration will fight for that office, whether those resources get shifted over to the office of fossil energy, and then broadly in the budget negotiation process in the House, what the uh, Paul Ryan camp prioritizes. And what they use for pay-fors. That's what we need to watch out for all these tax credits on, um, is pay-fors, because he wants to get his budget plan through. He needs to kill some programs. So it's going to be really, we have to be really, really vigilant about protecting what we have so far. Right. So that gets to the question that a lot of people have been asking is like, are the ITC and PTC in jeopardy? Which means it does require legislation to remove them. They are in place. You know, they have some bipartisan support. So for all those reasons, it's not nearly as clear cut a case as, say, rolling back the clean power plan is right. But what you're saying is that you know, those rules, those those programs could be on the chopping block in any kind of broader deal, a budget deal, a tax deal, anything like that. Yeah, I mean, the PTC and ITC have a couple things going for them. One is that they are phase out bills. <laughs> so they are definitely on the track to phase out anyway. So it's not like it's a huge amount that it would give them. The other piece is they, that they do have good Republican support. That's not to say they're not going to be on the chopping block and won't need protecting. So I think they're we're going to have to really fight hard for them. And other tax credits that haven't been put into place or about to expire, I just think they're going to be in serious jeopardy too. Okay, so let's summarize. Then we don't think that the ITC and PTC are under imminent threat. They could potentially be under threat during um, uh, comprehensive tax reform negotiations, but likely not. And then there's this wild card, which is the storage ITC that the storage industry has been working on. Catherine, give us some intel there. Uh, I have heard in conversations that in informal discussions with the Trump transition team, they have no interest in a storage ITC. Yeah, I don't think they have an interest in any specific technology tax credits like that i, I just right. don't it's like so it's any specific yeah. any technology specific spending they're just not interested yeah in. i just think well they may be i, I don't know when he gets in what he's going to want to put forward there are a lot of things on the chopping block that are going to be more imminent like obamacare uh so they're going to be focused on a lot of other stuff i just think in the lame duck which is where we were hoping this itc piece would be dealt with that that the odds of that happening are much, much lower now of having a lame duck in which you could actually negotiate and get some things done. I agree that it seems pretty unlikely you get a new tax credit in general for a specific technology and even for energy storage in particular, which, you know, you you can make a case sort of competes with natural gas in some places. Um, It seems kind of hard to imagine. That said, energy storage was actually mentioned in a positive light in the RNC platform, right? which I don't know what to make of that, but maybe there's a case that energy storage will yield a little bit more support during this next yeah, administration. Yeah, so so maybe in an infrastructure bill with where there's some there's some investments in smart grid or, you know, grid modernization of some sort that you would have some storage thrown in there. I don't expect a huge spending package because Ryan is not big into spending. But I do think that in the context of grid modernization, that that's a good place for storage. I think there are a lot of other ways that storage could be benefited, but probably not through a big tax credit. What about uh, also in his first 100-day plan, Donald Trump says he will work with Congress um, on a bunch of different 
legislative measures, one of which is the American Energy and Infrastructure Act, which by his description leverages public-private partnerships and private investments through tax incentives to spur a trillion dollars in infrastructure investment over 10 years. It is revenue neutral. So, you know, a trillion dollars in infrastructure and energy spending. I mean, they got to pay for it somehow. So yeah, well, how is it revenue neutral? I don't know. (laughs) Where does it get the neutral part? Well, carbon tax, economy growth, carbon tax. Well, he seems to. Donald Trump's proposals generally seem to rely on like this will grow the economy, which will then make it revenue neutral. But setting aside the revenue revenue neutral question, I mean, could you imagine that a portion of that trillion dollars in investment that you're getting is you know is supposed to come from? from energy storage or, you know, grid modernization stuff, grid edge. You can imagine that. (laughs) You can imagine all you want. I just don't, you know, I think um, we have to be hypervigilant. And I don't even think I would characterize that everything is not under threat that we care about. I just think we need to be real. This is not the time to say we need to not be engaged because nothing will get done because a lot is going to get done. And we want to make sure that there were the in the room or at least yelling outside the door <laughs> to try to get good things done. So yes, maybe we could get some things done. And that's of course, you know, the intention of everybody here. Can we just come back to the question that I had at the beginning, which is of all of the things that we've talked about thus far, which if any of them seem like they're Trump specific possibilities as opposed to general Republican platform possibilities? Well, well, I'll give you one that is less policy specific and more about um, the Trump impact, let's say. And after many conversations with folks at DOE, it's pretty clear that there are going to be a lot of people who just leave that agency because they are, are so anxious about how a Trump administration would govern that agency. And so I think under a Trump administration, you're likely to see a lot more top talent leave than under perhaps another Republican administration who may or may not place, you know, the same emphasis on renewable energy that Obama did, but who is per, who could potentially be perceived as someone who is competent and could lead that very complicated agency. So uh, in summary, I think we're going to see a pretty serious brain drain at the DOE that is specific to Trump coming in and governing. Yeah, I think um, based on what you said at the top of the podcast is that there's all this uncertainty because we don't he's been very capricious in his in all kinds of policy statements that he's made. And so I think that's the issue is the uncertainty. If you have a standard Republican like Bush, you kind of know where they're going to focus, but we don't really know where he's going to focus. And I think that's exactly what causes all the upheaval in the markets, all the upheaval in trying to figure out how he's going to lead and how he's going to govern, because he's never governed. Okay, there are a lot more topics that we could go over, but I think we've sufficiently covered the big ones. And next week in our show, uh, we're going to bring Jigger on and talk through a few more of them that he wants to touch on. And I think we'll also, since since the, the climate talks will be underway, perhaps bring on a journalist who is covering COP to talk about how international leaders are perceiving this transition to a Trump presidency. Um, before we go, any final words? I didn't bring a what you may not know this week. Um, Catherine, any, anything on your radar? 
There is, and it's probably something you don't know, which is um, I'm headed tomorrow for Dubai for the World Economic Forum. I am co-chair of a Global Future Council on the Future of Energy, and it will bring together dozens of leaders in energy, all forms of energy all over the world, and we're going to be hashing through what will happen. I have received numerous notes from people saying, we don't understand what just happened in your country, and um I think it's going to be really on me to 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 really assert what pe- what we know people know about the United States, which is that we are a great nation of innovators, that we cultivate and nurture entrepreneurs, that we have the best universities, research institutions, and labs in the world, and that we're going to continue to do that. I, I have to make sure that I'm a positive envoy for our, our country uh, as I head out there tomorrow, um, and I should have a lot to report back on our next show. Here, here. And look, if you're outside the United States or inside the United States for that matter and trying to figure this stuff out, you know, pass this podcast along if you have colleagues and friends who are like looking from the outside into the United States and saying, what the hell is happening here? We're going to be working through these issues. We're covering them very closely, both on the website and print in research and on this podcast. So so pass this along to people because I think it will be a good resource as we all collectively try to figure this out. Um, Shale, thanks very much. Thank you. Catherine, have uh, a good rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you. With Shale Khan and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.